0: We've been exploring what God says about hope. Now, nothing is more central to the Christian faith than hope. And yet, at the same time, I believe there's nothing more misunderstood than the word hope. And so this series, this time that we're in the word, is an attempt to recover the hope that God intends to give us. Not the way we define hope, but the way that God defines hope in His Word. Last week we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we learned that the greatest influence in our lives today is what we believe about the future. This week we're going to look at Romans chapter 5, the first eight verses this time. So if you would follow along with me as I read and then we'll pray, and then we'll dig in. This is God's Word. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. died for us this is the word of the lord let me pray lord we would run toward your word we would run with your word this morning if you would enlarge our hearts and make our hearts sensitive to you this morning Shine a light, not just on your word this morning, but in our hearts so that we would be transformed by you. Holy Spirit, we ask you to move and to work as this word is proclaimed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As some of you know, as you because you've been walking alongside me, my dad is battling cancer. And as people ask me how he's doing, I tend to say the same thing. I tend to say, well, he's learning to live scan to scan. And he has told me what living scan to scan feels like. He says on the one hand, living scan to scan imbues a sense of preciousness to every single moment and to every single day between those scans. But on the other hand, life between the scans can be scary. Especially as the scan approaches. Because what does a scan do? What does a scan do? A scan is a mirror to reality. Sometimes a reality that we do not want to face. A scan, in and of itself, doesn't do anything. It just tells us like it is right it tells it like it is and so we don't really fear the scan so much as we fear what the scan will reveal and i'm just sitting on the sidelines with my dad but last thursday i could relate to this because all day i kept trying to ignore the scan that was when he had his latest scan on thursday like it would go away and then thursday morning as i was praying God, this is what God does when you're praying. He sometimes gently but firmly asks you some questions. And he was like, Joe, why are you afraid of the scan? It was, it's almost as if you would prefer a false scan, my beloved. If it told you what you wanted to hear. It's as if he was saying to me, Joe, embrace the scan and entrust me with it. But if you're like me, uh, that's impossible. <laughs> okay, that's really, really hard because I would rather take, I'm being honest, a false scan in my flesh. I would rather take a false scan that tells me what I want it to say. Even if it would kill me in the end. That's how desperate I am to live in a pretend land of my own making. I wonder about you. Are you like me? I mean, this is, is this not why we surround ourselves with friends who don't tell us the truth about ourselves? Is this not why we sometimes avoid the Bible, not because we're too busy, but because we're afraid of what it might reveal in our lives? Is this not why we numb ourselves with what I call digital Novocaine? Did you know that the average person, the average, opens their phone 110 times a day? Is this not why we do these things? Is this not why we do this? What are we doing? We are ignoring the scan, as it were, whatever that scan is for you. Instead of embracing reality and the truth about the world and our world, the truth about suffering and our sin, instead of embracing these realities, we play pretend. And the world around us is more than happy to oblige in that game. There's a reason we do this. I think... It's because we know that embracing the truth about our sin, embracing the truth about the world around us, would bring us, if we did it, it would bring us to despair. And we're afraid. We're afraid of that. And so my question this morning is, is it possible to embrace the scam without falling into despair? Yes. And the answer that God gives us is hope hope enables us to embrace the scan without falling into despair and it's not just any hope but the hope that's given to us from God the hope that's carefully and beautifully defined for us by the Apostle Paul in the verses that we just heard read aloud That's the only hope. Everything else is a cheap alternative. And so what composes this hope? In this passage, we see three ingredients, three vital ingredients to the hope that God gives us. And all three are vital. And they are this justification, which we'll get into affliction and anticipation. All three are vital such that if we do not have those, we do not have the hope that God is offering us. We may have a worldly hope, but we do not have the hope that God is offering us. And so let's take a look at each in turn this morning. First with justification. Now I'm not making that word up. This is a word that Paul uses here in verse 1. It's the first ingredient of hope. Without justification, the hope that we have is not the hope that God gives us. Take a look at verse 1 and 2 with me. We'll read it again. Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. What follows is peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And so the first four chapters of Romans can be summarized by that first phrase that we encounter in verse one. We have been justified by faith. That is Paul's summary of all that he had been argued before. And what that means, if you're, if you're interested, is that when we lay hold of Jesus with empty hands of faith, that's the by faith part in that verse, we have peace through God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because why? Because we are justified. If we lay hold of Jesus with empty hands, God declares us just or right. Right before his presence now we are sinners and so god for god to be able to declare us just or right before him and not be a complete liar requires two things somehow his holy wrath and justice must be dealt with on account of our sin. And number two, we must live in beautiful obedience to God. Impossible. Unless we lay hold of what Jesus has done. And if we lay hold with empty, dirty, despicable, though they may be, hands of faith, we Church theologians have called this the great exchange. We exchange to Jesus our sins and he exchanges to us his righteousness. So that those two qualifications, so that God can be both just and justifier. So that He can both maintain His holy nature and say to us without lying, You are just in my sight. You are right in my sight. For that to happen, we need Jesus' death in our place. And we need Jesus' life in our place. And He needs to rise again, which He has. And we need to be united to Him by the Holy Spirit. All who lay hold of Jesus that's true of him. And if that's you, Paul says three things will happen in this passage. Peace with God. He says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. This peace is not just an absence of conflict, but it is a positive flourishing. A decent marriage has an absence of conflict. Actually, a bad marriage has absence of conflict because it probably means you're not dealing with issues. But... A good marriage has a positive flourishing. It's a marriage that flourishes, that connects, that trusts one another. Both in the marriage are growing. That is the relationship that is described between us and God. Though we were his enemy, we are now friends with God because of what Jesus has done. Also, we have a new standing with God. This flows from our justification. Paul says we now stand. We have obtained access by that faith into this grace in which we stand. We now stand in grace. In banking terms, if you want to think of it one way, sin has emptied our account. Jesus does not just pay our debt, which would make our account zero. But He deposits into our account all of his inheritance. All of his righteousness. So now we stand in that relationship with God. When God looks at you, he's not saying, oh, you screwed up. You better now get to you get your account back to zero because you're in the red. Oh, I see you did that. See, I see that lustful thought. You're in the red. Get it back up to zero. Oh, that white lie. You're in the red. Get it back up to zero you gossiped about that person. You're in the red. Get it back up to zero. That's how we think God acts. But instead, the truth is, if we are in Christ, we have all of his righteousness, all of his truth-telling, all of his pure thoughts, all of his life-affirming words. In our account, we stand in grace. And then we have a new boast. This is the third gift that comes after justification look with me again in verse two where he says and we rejoice the very end and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of god we rejoice in the hope of the glory of god the actual word that paul uses here could be defined as we boast in Some of you may have footnotes that actually give that lexical understanding that Paul says we boast because we're justified. We now have a new boast about the certainty of what of seeing God face to face. And what happens when we see God face to face? We will be transformed in it. Sinless, no grudges, no shame, no lustful thoughts, no more sickness, no more grief and pure joy in the Lord. When we see him face to face. And that now is our boast. My Greek dictionary, as I was studying this word, defines the word that Paul uses when he uses the word rejoice this way. To express an unusually high degree of confidence in someone or something. To express an unusually high degree of confidence in someone or something. Now that's what every Ohio State alum does each fall, right? They express an unusually high degree of confidence in their team. (laughs) I know that I'm not an Ohio State alum. I graduated from Miami University, but I know that I'm not a true dyed-in red. Scarlet, Scarlet, thanks. (laughs) See? Because I can say during a game, even last night, this doesn't look good for us. This just doesn't look good for us, Josie. And Josie's like, how could you say that? How could you even say that? How on earth do you even have that? The, why do you even go there? She has an unusually high confidence in her team. That's what boasting is. That's why the nation hates Buckeye Nation. Because we know how to boast. We have an unusually high confidence in something or someone. Urban Meyer. But those things fall short as we learned last night. Those who are justified have an unusually high degree of confidence that God will see us through. That's what Paul means when he says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And that's our first ingredient of hope. It's justification. Without that declaration from God, you are right before my presence. Not just at the judgment day, but right now. Because you are in Christ. Without that, we have no hope that God will see us through. But if that is true, we have that hope. The second ingredient of our hope then is affliction justification first affliction second without affliction we do not have the hope that god is offering us we may have a flimsy hope but it's not the hope that god is offering us read three and four with me paul says not only that but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and that endurance produces character and character produces hope as I said earlier, Paul says boast in hope here in verse three. He says not only that, but you can rejoice in the same word there or boast in something else. Your sufferings. As I was studying this, I just assumed that Paul was giving us two different boasts. Boast in your hope of glory and boast in your sufferings. Two different things. Boasts, but as I studied it more, as I thought through it more and prayed through it more, I came to see Paul's logic. It's really just one boast from two different perspectives. Because hardship starts a spiritual chain reaction that results in supernatural hope. And so we can actually boast. Christians look very differently at their sufferings than the rest of the world because we can look at our hardship and see through it an invisible line to a strengthened hope. Which means we do not despair. Our afflictions lead or build up or comprise our hope and make it stronger. I read this story about John Chrysostom, who's a church father in the 4th century. Apparently, he was brought before the empress of his day, and she threatened to banish him because of his preaching. And these are his words. He says, you cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. Apparently, she responded, but I will kill you. He responds, no, no, you cannot. For my life is hid with Christ in God. He says, I'll take away your treasures, your money. He says, no, you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. It's not in my treasures. She says, but I'll drive you away from your friends and you will have no one left. And he says, no, you cannot, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, he says. For there is nothing you can do to harm me. When you have peace with God, when you have a standing in grace, when you have been justified, when God says you are mine and there is nothing you can do to separate my love from you. When you have that and when you not only have that, you know that you are able with Chrysostom to draw the line from your present hardship to your future hope. We can embrace the scan as it were. Because we know that whatever the scan in your life shows you, there is a line from it to a more solid hope about what's to come. There's a third and final ingredient of hope. It's called anticipation. Justification and affliction, but also anticipation. And this is our final verses, 5 through 8. Read along with me. And hope does not put us He is saying to you, if you place your hope in my future, it will be worth it. God is saying to you, if you place your hope in my future, it will be worth it. My future, God is saying, is not overhyped. you will not be humiliated on that day when the object of your hope arrives. You will, in fact, overflow with joy and gratitude and wholeness and beauty and it will exceed your expectations and you will say, and you will mean it, I had no idea. There's a word for that moment when overhyped things in life let us down. It's called anticipant. It's a good word. And it's one of the saddest words that we have. Because we know it. That letdown that is multiplied exponentially by our expectations. It's that letdown that is multiplied exponentially by our expectations. And what do we do in this world as a result? We lower our expectations, don't we? And maybe we should lower some of our expectations about things in this transient world. But what it, we should not do is become cynical about the hope that God offers us. And that's what too many of us do. That's what I'm tempted to do. We stop anticipating God's future. Well, Paul's saying that there's one hope, and it's this hope. That will not let you down. In his words, he says, it will not put you to shame. You cannot overhype the hype of future glory. It is impossible to overhype this. And Paul gives us two proofs in this section. The first is God's felt love. God's felt love. Paul gets charismatic with us. And it's a good thing. He says that you can bank your hope on God because your heart, the seat of your will, the seat of your desires, is now filled with God's love. That's his language. Verse 5. This hope's not going to disappoint you. Why? Because God's love has been poured into your hearts through the Holy Spirit. When I place my hand on my son's neck, gently, but firmly, and I look at his eyes and I say, I love you, and I'm looking at them, he must feel my love. Because he lights up and he kind of shrinks away. Whoa. Whoa, Dad. God gives that gift to His children. If you haven't tasted that, ask God to give you that. And He will answer your prayer. The Holy Spirit into your heart convinces you in ways that go beyond our logic and our thinking but into that place of of the seat of who we are convinces us of His love so that we can cry out Abba Father so that we can have felt intimacy with the Lord ask God for it long for it if you've not tasted that so that's Paul's first proof that this hope will not disappoint. His second proof is, is God's demonstrated love. So first is God's felt love. That's when he gets charismatic on us. But now he gets Presbyterian on us because he fills our brains with logic. Okay? What's he say? He says, he says follow my logic. And the logic is this. Because Jesus died for us at our worst on the cross. When we were enemies with God, how could this not follow from that that He will follow us through to the end? That He will indeed finish what He started in our life? That's the unbreakable logic that Paul gives us that we can not just feel the love, but we can see it demonstrated on the cross, should we ever doubt it. What happens is you start to feel and comprehend your anticipation. Growing for glory, it builds and builds and builds. How could it not? And so don't let, don't settle for less than what God is offering you in this passage. It's not a flimsy hope. <laughs> it's not a flimsy hope. It's sturdy, and there's hardship in it, but it's real and it's good. It will not disappoint. It is not overhyped. It is the only thing. I'm telling you, and I love you, it is the only thing in your life that will not disappoint. I love this quote from Ray Ortland Jr. He says, and I'll end with it. He says, God is performing a miracle in our hearts. Listen to this. We love, he's talking about Christians who know this hope, we love this life as much as anyone else does. And maybe even more because we know it's the gift of the Father. But, God is also releasing us from emotional slavery to passing things of this life. We are not running from life in escapist dreams. We are not ignoring or denying the scans. He goes on. By faith, empty hands, we relish a foretaste of eternal things not available now, even to Christians. We do not panic over the disappointments of this life, but instead we rejoice or boast in the hope of the glory of God because we know it will be worth the wait. So Lord, we ask that you would... Convince us of this hope. We need convincing. And we're glad that the Holy Spirit in our life. Is sent to do just that. To convince our hearts that this hope is worth it. To make us feel a foretaste of that that glory. Even today in our life. Though we don't see it. We can experience your glory. By your Holy Spirit's work in our life. But for those of us who are cynical about life would you be gracious to us and may we never place that cynicism on the hope that you offer instead use the hardships which can indeed make us cynical use those things to build up our hope this is impossible without you Lord and so we ask for you to do it For those of us who are tempted to place our hopes on lesser things, to put all of our weight on things that are temporal, things like career, things like family, things like homes or plans or what have you, even the best of things. For those of us tempted to always put all of our weight on those things, like friends at school, good grades from that hard class, whatever it is, we're tempted to place all of our hope in. Lord, would you be good to us and help us to place all of our weight instead? On this eternal hope of glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.